I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Fellow music nerds, welcome to season two of the Music Makers and Soul Shakers podcast. I am your host, Steve Dawson, coming to you from the Hen House Studio here in Nashville, Tennessee. I'm a Canadian guitarist, songwriter, producer, and engineer, and I've been living and working here in Nashville for the last four years. A couple of years back, I decided to reach out to some of the amazing musicians, engineers, and producers I've met along the way to learn some of their more in-depth stories than what I'd been hearing elsewhere. So between March and August of this year, I'll be releasing a new conversation every Wednesday with someone who I feel has been involved with creating great recorded music. Feel free to reach out to me or leave comments at www.stevedawson.ca and don't forget to subscribe to the podcast for free on iTunes. Now, let's get down to another episode of Music Makers and Soul Shakers. Greetings to you all from the Hen House Studio here in historic Nashville, Tennessee. Today, I bring you another gripping episode of Music Makers and Soul Shakers and my conversation with the great Chris Eldridge, also known as Critter. Known to many of you as the guitarist from the Punch Brothers, Chris is honestly one of my favorite acoustic guitarists out there these days. I had the good fortune to meet him a year or so ago at a jam at Tim O'Brien's place here in Nashville, and we sat around with four or five guys playing John Hartford tunes, which was a real treat, both to play John Hartford tunes uh, and also to hear someone with Chris's amazing ability up close and personal. I do about half of these interviews over the phone, but it's always extra special when the artist that I'm talking to is around Nashville, either lives here or is visiting and can come by. We get to do things in a somewhat more relaxed fashion, and there's none of the annoying glitchiness that goes along with phone and Skype conversations. Chris lives here in Nashville, and so he dropped by the Hen House, my studio here, for a good yak, and we got into his amazing new album that he's made with with um, Julian Lodge called Mount Royal, which you have to check out. It's some really incredible guitar duet music, somewhat inspired by traditional music, but it definitely veers off into improv and unpredictable acoustic territory. It's awesome stuff. And I believe it is going to be released by the time this episode airs. So check that out. Um, Chris Eldridge and Julian Lodge, Mount Royal. That is the name of the album. Chris has a really interesting story to tell. Uh, Growing up 
with a couple of banjo pickers for parents. And his dad, of course, was the banjo player in the Seldom Scene, which was a legendary and seldom seen bluegrass band from the 1970s that I listened to quite a bit because I always dug the dobro player, Mike Aldridge. And when I was getting into bluegrass and acoustic music, he was somebody that I was very aware of. So he was the dobro player in the Seldom Scene. And Chris kind of grew up around those guys a bunch. And he also had the the good fortune to grow up around the master flat picker, Tony Rice, um, because Tony was sort of involved in the seldom scene. And as we found out in this conversation was almost a member of the seldom scene. Um, anyway, we got into that story about him and Tony and studying a bit, um, under Tony Rice. And, uh, yeah, Chris is still really a youngster in the big scheme of things. Um, but he does have a rich recorded history, also with the infamous String Dusters, he was an original member of that band, although he only played on their first album. Um, and shortly after that, he was basically headhunted by Chris Thiele to join a group that was intended to play Chris's new classical masterpiece. But the group evolved into really one of the most forward-thinking modern pop ensembles, but they play with bluegrass instrumentation, the Punch Brothers. He's made a bunch of records with them. I think it's five or six. I can't remember off the top of my head. But along the way, with the Punch Brothers, he's worked with some of my favorite producers, namely John Bryan, T-Bone Burnett, and Jakir King. So I got to pick his brain about all that. And uh, yeah, please go hunt Chris's music down through his website at chriseldridge.net. You can also get his upcoming dates with Julian Lodge there and... Probably soon there will be some info on some upcoming Punch Brothers action, because I know that that's coming up as well. And I think he also teaches, which I noticed on his website. I don't know how much he actually teaches, but if you're in the need of a flat-picking kick in the ass, he can help you with that. Um, Thanks, everybody, for tuning in and listening this week. As always, you can connect with me and the show at www.stevedawson.ca. Feel free to make some comments there, and uh, if you feel inclined to contribute to the show financially, uh, we would be happy to accept your donations of any kind. It's really the way that we keep this show going, and it's greatly appreciated. Um, Also, please subscribe to the show on iTunes. That really helps us as well get the word out there, the more people that actually subscribe. That is free. You can just go do that and subscribe and get it downloaded automatically every week. You know how that works, right? Good. All right, now I'd like to tell you about today's sponsor, Union Tube and Transistor from Vancouver, Canada. They're known for guitar pedals with a focus on quality and simplicity. They build durable, repairable products that are as at home in the studio as they are on stage. I gotta say, I use these pedals all the time in the studio and live. I've got their Moore pedal and a Sonebender pedal, and they both get tons of mileage on sessions and gigs. Great tones and the best fuzz effects going too. Check them out at www.uniontone.com. Okay, well, let's get down to it. Here is my conversation with Chris Eldridge. Yeah, maybe we could talk a little bit about that project that you've been doing recently. I don't know how much you want to talk about it at this point, but sure, uh, it sounds interesting. And then, and also, your role in that is something that I didn't know that you did, which is engineering and producing. So, well, I I, I don't do much of that. Oh yeah, yeah. I mean this this record. Um, I, I so I got really into sound i've always been into sound yeah. like the, the way that music sounds you yeah. know if you've got the architecture of the music uh, you know and that whole side of things um but then when i was even from the time i was a kid it was like the sound of music actually meant something to me and i've always been really attached to that 
Um, and so recently, I've been interested in trying to figure out how to um, record stuff well, how to how to mm -hmm. like get great sounds when you record because it's something that I care about. And so last year, or I guess it was two years ago now, um, was a big Punch Brothers year. So I was taking all of my disposable income, yeah. a lot of it, yeah. and just started buying gear. Right. I just started buying mic, you know, good microphones yeah. and. And stuff, kind of with the idea of future proofing, thinking like it's a good investment too if you're buying good stuff. So I yeah, I just kind of was like trying to future proof. Like who knows if people will even be buying records or if there's any money to be made, yeah. uh, especially for like a folk, weird folk niche picker <laughs> like me, you know. Right. right. Um, but people are still going to want to listen to music. So this was my rationale, and I was buying stuff and. And uh, my friend Jordan Tice, who's a great guitar player and composer, made a record last year. And he asked me, he knew that I'd been um, buying all this stuff and I was really into it. And he just asked me to engineer because, yeah. you know, guitar player. And I wound, up kind of, I wound up engineering, but kind of wound up kind of producing it yeah. uh, to some extent as well. And now it's like it was a really fun thing. I had no idea what I was doing, <laughs> and then I just kind of went by the seat of my pants. Yeah, and, man, that's and we how you just learn, right? Kind of made it work. Yeah, yeah, and and it turned out pretty good. Um, so and, what's that? Is that record out? Yeah, it's called Horse County. I may not be qualified to do it, but I feel like I I can do it reasonably well. At yeah, this point. and you've been around some of the best in the world. Yeah, at I, doing that, so it's not like you're coming at it from a total. Yeah, maybe, I, f I feel, I don't maybe, know. I feel maybe you like weren't paying attention to that. that side of it, though. I, well, I started sure, paying okay. attention a few years ago. Okay. Like, I was really paying attention on the last Punch Brothers record, which we made with uh, uh, T-Bone Burnett. And T-Bone right. always works with Mike Persante. Right. Or there's Mike, and there's also this guy named Jason. Yeah. But, um, but yeah, Mikey's, like, such a badass. Yeah. Incredible. Yeah. Um, and, and so I was definitely watching keenly as right. he did that. And then I actually okay. made another record with, with Mikey uh, for Sarah Watkins. Okay. Sarah Watkins made a record yeah. that I played on and, and was just really, you know, taking notes and, and trying to learn what different, what different microphones did and sounded mm -hmm. like. And, and like that Sarah record was kind of fun because I'd really started being a little bit more active in my, it was like part hobby, right. you know, yeah. uh, at that point. But, but I was, you know, that was providing the opportunity of like for me to say, okay, I'm playing this guitar on this song. Let's like try these two mics. These might uh -huh. work. And you know, yeah. eventually from just experimenting over the course of that record. I mean, we were making a record, so it's not like we right. it was a play. You know, we had to work and get stuff done. But but we did. We were kind of making choices, and yeah. it was really cool for me to kind of learn. A pair of KM84s can be like a beautiful thing. On this last, Julian Lodge and I just made a record that's mm -hmm. coming out. It's killer. Yeah. Oh, thanks. Yeah. Thanks. Yeah. I'm really excited about that. But Jules's guitar sound was just a pair of KM84s. That okay. I think it. I think his guitar sounds insane on this record. Yeah. It's incredible. Yeah. Um, Did you have that a similar setup for yourself on, on the record no, as well? No. My my thing was a little goofy on that record because so I have I have I basically Jules was stereo mic and I yeah. had. I basically wasn't. Okay. Um, what was the thinking behind that? Well, it wasn't intentional. We cut the record really fast. We cut it in like two and a half days. Okay. Um, and we, 
we wound up just kind of it was like almost like a run and gun sort of thing we were yeah. so under pressure to get really? this thing done yeah because we only had a, you guys are our both window super busy and, yeah, yeah our window was so tiny and we'd actually we cut the record once before we actually tracked it here in july at paul's house on yeah. all my stuff yeah uh with matt andrews okay. um engineering and it was cool but like we we just didn't the music just wasn't quite ready really at that point yeah it okay. was like we had we've recorded the whole record and i edited the whole thing and, and really uh, yeah so this was a, a from scratch remake of it, it wound up, yeah. At first, it was like, you know, we need these songs need to be rewritten. They're not quite uh -huh. up to par. And then, yeah. it just kind of, without even really realizing it, it just kind of turned into, okay, let's let's just remake the whole thing from the right. ground up. But we only had, we'd only out, you know, we were initially going to re-record like three songs, so we so had like a couple, couple days. days, right? And and then it was just like, oh, okay, <laughs> well, and so it when we were setting up, it was so fast and. Yeah. I've got this incredible microphone. I, I, I got in touch at, you know, cause being, being like uh, new to all this, I, I spent way too much time like on <laughs> gear sluts and yeah. reading all the, I know lots, well. lots of nonsense sure. on there, but, but there's a lot of great information to be gained as well. And I started, I kind of got hip to Klaus Heine uh -huh. and, and I knew some people who, who know Klaus uh -huh. and everybody just thinks the world of him. Right. So finally I just, I just called him up one day because his number's right there on his website, and um, and he was asking me what what I, you know, what things I'd, I'd had good luck with, and I told him a two fifty one. And he, he modifies mics. What's his he, deal? He modifies mics. He's okay. he's this he's like the, you know, he's like the king of right. modifying yeah. like old great microphones. Okay. Um, and he really specializes in like Neumann and AKG stuff, but yeah. But anyway, we were talking, kind of just given my budget and what what I and he suggested like he's an eighty seven. Right. So he said I can I can do a modification on an eighty seven that will do these hit these certain parameters that I had expressed to him that I wanted to mm -hmm. get like a really beautiful, super detailed, really high resolution kind of mid range thing, okay. which to me is like. That's what acoustic guitar is all yeah, about. That's where it sits, right? That's where that's where it, yeah, that's what needs to be awesome. Um, and so anyway, like Klaus built this mic for me, and I was all excited about it and from scratch. Or you sent him an no, it's, a, it's an eighty-seven. Okay. it's a it's a new eighty-seven that he guts and he tunes, oh. retunes the capsule and new transformers and and oh, okay. really, really just completely rebuilds the circuit path to make it hmm. super simple. And it's incredible. I mean, it's it's amazing. It's really? A, yeah, it's. I mean, I'm I'm a total believer in this guy. It's like <laughs> I can I, tell. Yeah, I'm not gonna like <laughs> monkey with other stuff. I'm just gonna like call him from now on and be like, right. all right, I know I could buy two mics, uh, you know, you know, for probably what this will cost. But yeah, yeah. So so anyway, that was my mic, and and but we just didn't. When we recorded it the first time here in Nashville, we had that mic and then an M49 for my voice because I was yeah. playing and singing live. Yeah. And, you know, an M49 has so much beautiful reach. Yes. Um, it's a beautiful sounding microphone, but it also, it just, it has a lot of, uh, it covers a lot of space. Yeah, I know what you mean. Um, and it worked really well. And so we just kind of used that same setup on this like throw and go okay. thing when we re-recorded. So where LA. did you do the, oh, LA is where L you did the new version of it? Yeah. Okay. Is um, that where Julian lives? No, that's where Gabe Witcher lives. Okay. Who, who produced 
Oh. Um, and, uh, but we just, we had an 80, we didn't have an M49, we had an 87, and yeah. we just kind of put it in the same position and just went for it. Listened briefly, and it was like, clock's ticking. <laughs> you know, it was, it was cool, but yeah. uh, we weren't careful with the sound like we might have been. And okay. I think later, maybe that's realized, a good thing. Yeah, yeah, it might not have been a bad thing. I mean, it was nice because we just kind of jumped right into the music, and that yeah. was kind of what we were concerning ourselves. Which, I mean, look, the most powerful records that there are are, you know, you think about these old blues records, um, yeah, man. Muddy Waters. Yeah, you man. think about who that influenced and how that changed the course of kind of Western popular music. Yeah, totally. It's like, and those records were. They're like the most powerful records there are. They're so influential and they yeah. sound scratchy and so yeah. whatever. It's the, it's the performance is what matters. But it turns out the 87 just didn't, the vocal on my voice wasn't kind of doing the thing that the M49 was. And, okay. and I wound up basically just having like a single microphone. It oh. sounds beautiful. It does. But it's like the picture's kind of weird because Julian is okay. So your vocal mic'd. and guitar are sitting over in one little zone, and yeah, it just didn't capture really any of the guitar. That okay. was kind of the weird thing about having the, the uh, second okay. non-modified eighty-seven up here. Right. right. So, so tell me a bit about that process with him because I've heard the new record; it's killer. Um, thank you. It's the second one you've done, or third one you've done with him. It's kind of um, it's the second full record. We made an EP. Um, oh, back okay. in 2013. Okay. Um, um, and what's the name of the one that's coming out? It's called Mount Royal. So how do you approach arranging the tunes and stuff with, with him? And, and do you Boy. write specific tunes for that duo project? Well, a lot of that music got written together. Oh, okay. Um, you know, I, I probably... It's probably almost evenly and It's not quite... There are a few cover songs, but... Yeah, there's a bit of trad stuff on there, right? Yeah, there there are um, there are two, I guess maybe three. There's one. There's like a fiddle tune that we played, kind of impromptu. Yeah. Um, and then there's a there like there's a John Hartford song, right? And a kind of an old bluegrass song written by this guy Don Stover. And then the other vocal song is an Eddie Vedder song. Weirdly. Oh, is it? Oh, okay. Yeah. Yeah. But um, and then all the rest of the music, um, which I guess is eight more songs, were. Um, original. original okay so what's the process like you're you're like when do you guys have time to sit around writing tunes well we schedule time you do yeah okay. i mean so it, that band i think i call it and think of it as a band that okay. band like is is really important to to me and i think yeah. and to jules too so you know we just put it on the calendar like mm -hmm. when when can we write and right. find find a time and we we have the same manager um okay uh so that makes scheduling a lot easier. Yeah, no excuse for conflicts. Yeah, for double booking. Exactly. <laughs> um, do you sit there and like just jam for a while, or do you come in with ideas, or how do you all, co yeah, write them? All of the above. I mean, this record, we there was definitely. Um, I mean, there are a few songs that we both kind of wrote independently and brought to it, and yeah. kind of tried to arrange it together. But um, yeah, we were doing writing exercises, like we're. <laughs> uh, where we would say, um, okay, we've got an hour right now. Let's write, uh, let's break it into 15 minute chunks. You go in this bedroom, I'll go in this really? other bedroom. Yeah. And we'll, each of us will try and come out with four songs written. And each one, <laughs> like, will be like, rewrite a song that you yeah. love. 
Wow. And find something about it and like write that song. And, okay. And you have to show up, show back up in 60 minutes with four songs. Right. And which, so there were, there's like almost like a free writing exercise, except wow. that it's tethered to something. I, um, and uh, that was really cool because, because you just, you don't really even have time to think about what you want it to be. There yeah. was, like, I remember there was a, uh, Oh, great Chicago blues guy. Got me run. Jimmy Reed. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Jimmy Reed. And uh, I had this Jimmy Reed song in my mind. So I was okay. like, okay, I'm going to, what's this Jimmy Reed song all about? And I don't even remember what I thought it was, it was about. And musically, not, not yeah. words. And, but, but there was, I latched onto something and it was like, yeah. all right, I'm going to write a thing about that little moti- motif that he right. does or that move. Yeah. And it's it's just really cool way to sort of jumpstart your creativity. Yeah, man. Is no just kidding. set the clock and, and right. like, okay, go. And of course, like nothing nothing emerged in the, its final form. But boy, you can get some good seeds that way. Yeah, yeah, no kidding. And then and then it was a matter of like, okay, after an hour, we'd come back together, and in just one hour's time, we have eight seeds. <laughs> right. And then 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 you kind of just start you weed those out, sorting and, through them, and seeing. Yeah. You know, seeing what there is that's there. Is there is there much free stuff? Like the the record strikes me as fairly arranged. Like I know there's improvisation going on, but yeah, is there any tunes that you just went in cold for? Well, yeah, it's interesting. One, there's one song on there that uh, it's this song called Lion's Share, uh-huh. uh, and uh, I don't know if, if you. It, it was the one I, I'm playing. Basically, like it's a real steady song. It's mm-hmm. um, where I'm just kind of playing. Uh, it's like this six eight thing mm-hmm. that was a free improv like we just okay. set we we would also get our our iphones and just yeah. hit you know open up the voice memo app like yeah. you do yeah and hit record and just improvise for like a, a short piece that, that would be a thing where together we'd try and improvise a song together yeah. with a beginning a middle and an end and that was one that we improvised and you know, among like, you know, 30 others. Mm-hmm. Um, and for that one, it was just like, we listened back and we're like, that's pretty cool. So we just right. transcribed it note for note. Really? And so the thing on the record <laughs> is an arrangement in the sense that we're playing, you know, all the notes are preordained, but they're literally just the notes, note for note that we improvised Crazy. on that one improv. Wow. Yeah. Was it hard to reconnect with that feel that you had no, when it was because improvised? That one, it was, was so... Um, that tune is so, you know, it was like really grounded. Yeah. We were really grounded to each other and it was really grounded to like simple themes. So, okay. so it's not like it was tricky to relearn it, but yeah. it was just, I, I don't know. I think that's kind of cool. That, yeah, that, that song just wound up actually, that's an improvisation. Playing as a, duo, a guitar duo, it's not something that really you hear a ton of. Um, I, you know, the, like maybe Doc Watson records when when uh, Merle was playing with him, I hear that kind of thing, but mm-hmm. also those, that, those two Tony Rice, Norman Blake records. Yeah. I'm guessing those were maybe a bit of an influence. Like you guys definitely take it way more outside than, than that, but. Well, one of the, one of the early kind of things that um, we had in common that, that we, we both loved um, was there was a Tony Rice and John Carlini record. Have you ever oh, heard okay. this? It's called uh-uh. River Suite for Two Guitars. No. It's a beautiful record. Okay. Really nice. And, and so, and Jules and I both like geeked out on that when we were okay. kids, yeah, independently. Yeah. Um, 
Yeah, I would say that was that was almost more that was really kind of more of a of a touchstone. I'm not even sure that Jules has ever listened to like the Blake and Rice records. Right, right. Um, but he definitely, you know, he grew up hanging with David Grisman. Jules was kind of a child prodigy out in California. Yeah, that's what I understand, right. Yeah, and so like he would he met Grisman when he was a kid and and Grisman uh, would send him home like he'd go hang with dog and and he dog would send him home with you know a 1935 you know single 018 right and, and so jules would have this like sweet old martin for a yeah. while and then he'd go back and yeah. dog would give him another so jules has always had this uh kind of secret love affair as he says with with these old martin flat top guitars okay um and so that was like a big part of us kind of coming together is because that, I mean, that's totally my That's your, world. that's your wheelhouse. Yeah. 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 Um, but, but, you know, everybody thinks of Jules as this like jazz guitar guy, which he totally is. And, but, uh, but he, you know, it was like his dirty little secret that he loved. <laughs> he loved like, you know, bluegrass and, yeah. and, yeah. and that old stuff. And, well, he know, sounds really natural playing that. Like he's obviously not just like. Yeah, messing around with it. He's well versed in all that. We yeah traditional he, stuff. You know, he used to hang. Well, he hung with Grisman a lot, but but when he was, uh, he kind of had this weird thing where he was like teaching and getting like a, a diploma at Berkeley when he was like, you know, twelve. Yeah, twelve basically. <laughs> and but he used to, he was there at the same time as this crop of really talented young um, kind of string band players yeah. like guys well like sarah jarose who, mm-hmm. who went to nec but is now you know yeah. doing great and yeah. and great mandolin player dominic leslie sam grisman mm-hmm. david grisman's yeah. son uh alex hargraves mike barnett all these like inc- really incredible like truly right. badass musicians yeah. yeah and they were all kind of a posse it was really cool they they came up together so uh, anyway jules was there when this this like really cool String band uh, thing was happening. Yeah, crew of people w- were assembled right. there, and he used to hang out with them, and they'd play fiddle tunes, mm-hmm. and, and uh, so you know he's definitely spent a lot of time with it. Okay. Um, but another another kind of touchstone that he and I talked about, other than the River Suite for two guitars, was uh, some of those early, um, uh, like. Eddie Lang and Lonnie Johnson right. guitar yeah, yeah. duets. Yeah. Which oh, is, yeah, of course. Yeah. That stuff is awesome. They man. are badass. That's yeah. really cool. Yeah. So, and for anybody who may be listening to this who doesn't know, my dad uh, played in a, a bluegrass band called The Seldom Scene. My dad, yeah. Ben Eldridge, was the banjo player. Yeah. And they're, they're like this really, um, you know, influential band uh, especially back in the in the 70s and where, 80s where where were you where where'd you grow up dc well okay greater dc i grew up in virginia it's crazy like how much South. bluegrass was coming out of that particular region dc was like yeah it was was kind of the hub of it for yeah. for a little while i mean you had the country gentlemen the seldom scene the johnson mountain boys like yeah. all these kind of different really great um band well in the birchmere Right. Which, the Birchmere, which is this great club, was yeah. a real home for uh, for acoustic music and bluegrass. Okay. Um, and they also DC also had WAMU back in the day. They had a bluegrass. They had a radio station, is an NPR station, eighty-eight uh-huh. five, that played bluegrass from three to six every weekday. Really? That's yeah. A lot of bluegrass. Which is crazy, yeah. right? But but you know broadcasting from american university like in yeah. the middle of washington dc so yeah. 
that music was getting broadcast right. to an entire city of people. Um, and, you know, if you have that kind of support for the music, like it, it gets out there and yeah. people care and, and the city starts to care about it. Yeah. And then they had the Birchmere. So, so yeah, DC was this really kind of rich scene for, for that music back in the day. With your dad being in the seldom scene, was the band, were they all, all those guys, were they based out of that area? Mm-hmm. And yeah. so was the, like, were they always around your house rehearsing and... No, not at all. Oh, seldom really? scene is a really weird band because they were all guys with, like, normal white-collar jobs. Like Really? Yeah, like, John Starling was a doctor. Um, really? Yeah, my dad's a mathematician. Okay. Um, uh, Tom Gray was a cartographer for Ma- National Mathematics Geographic. and banjo goes hand in hand. Totally it? does, it turns out. <laughs> uh, yeah, Noam Pakelny was an engineering student. Really? But yeah, Mike Aldridge was in that band. Mike too, Aldridge right? was in that was, band. He does was, he have a day job? Yeah, he was a he was a graphic artist at, at uh, the Washington Star newspaper. He was like really? one of the illustrators for the newspaper. So they would just kind of get together like in the summers and do a few. They, they had gigs? a weekly gig um, first at. The uh, Red Fox, which is this club in Bethesda, Maryland. Yeah. Um, When I think they played every Tuesday night at the Red Fox for, I don't know, you know, five years or something like that. And I forget, you know, initially the seldom scene, as as I've heard it told, because it started, I was born in 1982 and the band started in 1971. So I missed, you know, a lot. Yeah. But... As as I've heard it told, that that was just kind of like their weekly card game. They'd get together because really? they were all guys with their nine sure. to five jobs. Yeah. They'd get together and pick because they all loved bluegrass. Mm-hmm. And uh, and eventually, somebody their band that had you know these guys were, who were musicians like had to go out of town one week, and they asked the basement band mm-hmm. uh, to get together and sub for them. And they called John Duffy up because yeah. they needed someone to sing tenor right actually be singing these songs and uh and uh duffy said yeah sure you know i'll come over (laughs) and and that was that was just kind of that but before you knew it uh there were you know like line like out the door to see the band really even though that was just this like started out as this like for fun basement pickup band yeah uh right off the bat there was like a you know big Big scene. Big, big scene that wanted to check them out. And, and it was sort of this accidental thing. And they had a weekly gig. Yeah. Um, and they, they they also put out some great records. I mean, those first yeah. seldom seen records are like... That does not seem like a bunch of weekend warriors. No, it's like, it's a pretty, <laughs> it's like, it was pretty revolutionary, yeah. like bluegrass back then. Yeah. Um, and it's great. That stuff really still holds up. It's like some of my, I'm so proud to, to right. even be like associated it with it in any way just yeah even that like my dad played it it's like it's really good stuff did they ever consider dropping out of normal guy jobs and I, doing it full-time or i know some never... of them i know like aldridge like always wanted to to up up that game yeah. and but i know my like my dad for instance just like had little to no interest in that really yeah i mean they would still they would play on weekends and every now and yeah. then they'd go They'd they go and do like festivals and tours though, wouldn't yeah, they? Or no? Well, not not tours. The only tours that they ever did were in like internationally. Like they'd go to, oh, there okay. a few times. I remember when I was a kid where they like went to Japan for like. That's you know, crazy because like in my mind they're just like this legendary band that I assumed was like on the circuit, like playing as much as everyone else was. But no, they. I mean, they'd also play you know festivals on the weekends, but right. and and like my dad's job 
was was pretty cool. After like as time marched on, some of the guys dropped out of their regular gigs. But my dad right. only retired from being from his his day job uh, like three years ago. He's seventy eight, okay. so he he worked yeah. that job until he was seventy five. So what else was going on in your life? Like as a kid, um, you, you started out, like you were playing not just bluegrass, you were playing like electric guitar and stuff too, yeah, right? Yeah, totally. Uh, yeah. Or was bluegrass like totally not cool for you at the, at bluegrass, when you were a kid? Yeah, I think like, I mean, just as I kind of try and uh, reconstruct it in my mind, I think bluegrass must have not been very cool because <laughs> I definitely was leaning hard on electric guitar when I picked it up. Yeah. I, I first started playing... Um, so John Starling, who was the original lead singer in the Seldom Scene, yeah. uh, he and his family moved to Fredericksburg, Virginia, which is the town I grew up in, about, right around the corner, a block and a half away from um, where my dad lived. Mm-hmm. And, and John and his wife Cynthia had a son named Jay, who's two and a half years older than me. And Jay is, is and was just an awesome dude. Jay Starling is just love that guy forever you were and, buddies. and and when i yeah we were totally buddies but also when we were kids he was two and a half years older and jay's always been cool you know right. and a little cool i just wanted to like he was yeah. my hero you know okay. i wanted to be he was like my big brother slash yeah. like 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 hero and he picked up the guitar and quickly like within a year could play like you know as like a 12 year old kid could play like mean pretty convincing stevie ray vaughn okay like he was he was always a prodigy, and so I looked up to Jay. But I also was like, "Hey, that looks easy." Like, right? And Jay's doing it. Like, I want to yeah. get in on that. And I'd always loved music. I mean, my mom. We've been talking about my dad, but music was like a defining thing on her, like in her family when she was growing up. Her oh, yeah? parents met kind of because of music, and uh-huh. and music is just such a huge, huge side of of that that side of the family. Yeah. And so we would listen to all kinds of different stuff in the car. We'd be, you know, we'd listen to Tony Rice, but yeah. we'd also spend like we'd a lot of time listening to Glenn Gould playing mm-hmm. Bach or Oscar Peterson or. Ooh, I like Stephan- that you picked out a couple Canadians there. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> there was a lot of different music yeah. that was that was happening in my childhood, kind of through my mom. Right. And uh, was she a was she a, like a pianist or anything? Or no, what? she was a banjo player. Actually, that's really? how she and my dad met. Is, really? Yeah, she was like a Bill Keith style melodic really? banjo player. No kidding. And she was really good. You know, she uh-huh. was like, uh, you know, uh, I think she played more. She played in a kind of local band, and she played in some contests. But yeah. you know, my mom was like Maryland State banjo champ. Really? <laughs> when Jay uh, started playing electric guitar, I wanted to start playing electric guitar. And I okay. kind of did it for a little while just to mimic him. But then after about a year or so, um, I heard Eric Johnson, yeah. the electric guitar player. Yeah. And for whatever reason, for 10-year-old me, that like... That just, totally did it for you. It was like a totally life-changing moment. Right. Like fireworks just went off in my brain. And, yeah. And it was, I was so... It like made me feel weird you know huh. in, in interesting this, yeah in, in like a cool in a good way you yeah. know but um well I he's just, sort of got like the for a rock guy he's sort of got the the in a way like the technical level of a real good bluegrass player too like maybe from being around so much bluegrass like yeah that kind of a guitar player like really connected to you or something yeah there's something really um, not that he's a country player or anything but he right there's something really elegant about 
his his yeah. whole concept, yeah. which I think like kind of tied into somehow I don't know like something in common with like Glenn Gould playing mm-hmm. beautiful stuff. That's really elegant. Or Stefan Grappelli. Like a lot mm-hmm. of the music that I was kind of raised on with my mom had had, had this kind of really profound elegance and mm-hmm. and thoroughness to it. Who else were you really into at that point when you were just starting electric guitar? Well, I did. I loved the Almond Brothers. You know, I think before I even started playing guitar, somebody gave me, my Uncle David gave me an Almond Brothers box set. It was okay. like four CD. The Dreams box. Yeah, I think that's what it was. Yeah. And, uh, and like, I, I loved that stuff. And I could sing every solo on all four CDs. Right. And I just, I was super obsessed with it. Did you play any slide or anything? Or I never played slide. Okay. But, but I did, I did just, I loved that music. And, mm-hmm. um, I don't know. I got, I got kind of into Clapton. Never, but, uh, I got really into Robin Ford. Yeah. Um, He's and, not totally unlike Eric Johnson in a way. Like, no, no, not, definitely not. They're definitely different players and stuff, but he kind of comes from that, like technically kind of on a different level than a lot of the other. Yeah, there's something just like so, yeah, again, like thorough about their like yeah. concept or right. something. And the other guy, the one guy from like the shred guitar world who I always really loved was Joe Satriani. I always oh, yeah. thought like he, he kind of spun these like, really interesting worlds of music right. and, and i guess when you were like 10 or 11 that stuff was huge too, yeah right like that was like, was like late 80s early 90s like it was a big deal like yeah, yeah guitar magazines and right. all yeah. that like yeah it was um you know and especially being that age like yeah. it was all just so cool right i it was funny i never liked there's some guy like i never liked steve Vai, and i never really liked there, there were, you drew the line somewhere. Ingve Malmsteen. Yeah, there was right. like I, I, I had very strong opinions about this stuff. I was yeah. like, Ingve Malmsteen sucks. <laughs> like that's tasteless garbage, you know. But um, give me some satch. Yeah, but yeah, it's so funny, you know how how that. Yeah. But I, you know, I haven't listened to a new Joe Satriani record in twenty years now, yeah. probably. But like, maybe I it's don't know. time. It may be time. You know, I, I give, I definitely give respect. <laughs> Um, so did you play in rock bands and stuff? No, I didn't really play with anybody. That was a weird okay. thing. I spent a lot of time in my bedroom. Yep. Um, and then, and I was also, here's the other thing. I was like really bad. I, cause I think, <laughs> I think cause I was trying to jump in with all this like really advanced music, yeah. uh, on, on guitar. And I'm like kind of a clumsy dude anyway. And it just took, it really took a while for like, you know, my body to kind of wire itself up to be able to even switch from a G to a C chord in time. Really? Like, oh yeah. I mean, that was like, you don't I mean, seem to have that problem anymore. I mean, ask, you can ask my family. It's not like false modesty. It was like, it took like a year before I could switch from a G to a C. Really? Yeah. And like my brother Ben could do it like the, apparently like the first day, you That's know? That's crazy. Was it cause like, were you trying to jump ahead faster than your body and brain I think would allow? So. I that... think so. I think, I, yeah, exactly. I think, I think my mind wanted to do there was a lot of stuff that yeah for me it all kind of clicked when i got my mom got me this tony rice record called acoustics his first kind of instrumental record after he joined the david grisman quintet and that music was just really cool it Mm -hmm. like i instantly could really relate to it okay um because it had it was complex and naughty kind of in its own way yeah but 
Um, but it just kicked ass. Like the yeah. rhythm, like, I mean, Tony Rice is such an ins- insane musician yeah. and has such an incredible uh, sense of rhythm. At that time, were you able to <laughs> kind of pick some of that stuff up or were yeah. you not there yet? Yeah, no. For, so for whatever reason, like I'd been trying to, I mean, playing all this stuff on guitar, like the Eric Johnson, the Satriani, the Robin Ford, and then getting into the, like even trying to play along with these like weird fusion records. And I, it was just awful. But for whatever reason, when I got that Tony Rice record... Um, it came together. It all came together. For whatever, you, like really kind of quickly. I what, think it had something to do with the the rhythm of it is kind yeah. of based in bluegrass. Right. And which is what I'd totally grown up yeah. around. Like yeah. that was just the sound of my environment. Yeah. And so did acoustic music start taking over at some point and become more of a thing for you yeah I, well i mean i got i got super obsessed with tony rice okay. and, and, and especially that instrumental music like i wasn't so i love the record manzanita yeah but i wasn't so into um and actually me and my guitar that was like a huge one like in the car when i was growing up with my uh-huh. mom yeah but 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 really the thing that captivated me at first was like the backwaters pro- and the more progressive West. stuff yeah the progressive instrumental stuff right right um and but yeah, from there, from there, I kind of started easing back into it, and and I also this is where nepotism really did kick in. Like, <laughs> I st- I kind of got to the point where they would ask me, I would like sit in on a song with the seldom scene, yeah, um, when they'd play live, and and so all of a sudden I was like playing on stage. Was that like your first experience playing in a group? Was seldom seen? Yeah, kind of. Yeah, I mean, I would play. A little bit, uh, there was like a coffee shop in my hometown, and I used to play with this great musician in Fredericksburg named Kent Ippolito. Tell me about uh, meeting Tony Rice and learning from him. Ah, yeah, that was a big deal. Well, Tony, I mean, he was kind of around my whole life, but I don't... How? how? Well, he way? and my dad were old friends. Oh. So my dad like played on uh, Tony's... Tony made a record called California Autumn back in like 1974 that my dad played banjo on. Really? Yeah. And Tony used to, apparently back in the day, if he was coming through DC, a lot of times he'd stay at our house. Really? Yeah. I mean, this, you know, eight years before I was born, but, right. um, you know, and apparently, you know, it's funny, my, my sibling, I've half siblings that are all, you know, like 15 to 18, 14 to 18 years older than me. Uh-huh. And, um, and apparently they'd come home from school and Tony would still be asleep on the couch because <laughs> he was like, even back then he was like a complete night owl. Yeah. Yeah. So Tony was, was kind of around and it actually he subbed, he kind of played part time in the seldom scene. Oh, did he? For, uh, for like good. a year and a half. Pretty good sub. Not bad. Um, yeah. in like 91, 92. Really? Yeah. Cause John Starling rejoined the band. Yeah. Okay. Here's an interesting, like, uh, uh, diversion. Um, <laughs> so back in the mid seventies when, when Starling was, um, was in the band the first time he was gonna, he'd been talking about leaving the band to go, um, move back to Alabama uh-huh. and, uh, just really just do medicine. I think he, okay. he was a physician and just, Wanted to get out of it. And yeah. Tony was going to join the seldom scene. Like they'd kind of lined it all up. He was going to oh. replace John Starling in the seldom scene. Yeah. Um, and be the singer as well. Be the, be the lead singer for wow. the seldom scene and guitar player. And, um, and apparently um, something happened and Starling decided not to, 
he was like, okay, I'm not going to go yet. Like he decided to stick around for a little while. And meanwhile, in that time is when Tony met, uh, he played on, I think like a Bill Keith record and met mm-hmm. Grisman and, uh, okay. kind of saw what Grisman was up to with like kind of developing his music, okay, the, the dog music and all that. This is and back in like the early seventies, like 1974, I think okay. 75. Yeah. And, uh, and wound up. You know, because Tony was playing in J.D. Crow in the New South right. back then. So he was going to move from that band over to the seldom scene. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. And, uh, and he wound up, Starling wound up staying on, and Tony <laughs> met Grisman and wound up moving out to yeah. California. But it was like this close Wow, he was crazy. you know that was the plan. He was going wow. to join the scene, so he was around. Like oh, so he, you, right. you kind of knew him as a friend of your dad's. Or yeah, whatever. yeah, yeah. He was like he was a guy, and then you know, were you aware w- of who he was and stuff? Or well, eventually. Okay. I mean, I guess back then I didn't care because right. I was just a kid, yeah. and like, but event. Yeah, I mean, as soon as mom gave me gave me um, acoustics, yeah, I like sat up and took notice immediately, right. and and got to do some cool things when I was a kid, like I. Um, he recorded uh, all his recent records at Bias Studios in Northern Virginia, mm-hmm. Billy Wolf Engineering, and that's where the scene recorded. It, you know, it's okay. just kind of like the home base place. Mm-hmm. And so when I was 15, I think um, we went. The seldom scene and the Tony Rice unit would always play New Year's Eve at the Birchmere, which okay. happened for years. Um, so Tony was up. It was New Year's, and um, we got to. He was cutting his record, Unit of Measure. Oh yeah, yeah. Uh, it came out like in the '90s, late '90s, and and uh, I got to go up to the studio. My dad took me up, and I was like, went to the studio and got to watch him recut nice. Anzanita. Wow! And that was like when I was, I had just, I mean, I was probably like six months into like having a new hero in Tony Rice, and that was like you got to see him make a. Record. Oh my god! It was so cool. It was wow. amazing. What do you remember about that session? Um, well, I just remember, I sort of remember the feeling of, of like, how are these guys doing this? How are they making these sound? You know, it was just yeah. like being in a room with, with Zeus or something like right. that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I remember it sounded incredible. I just kind of remember the sound. It was just this kind of, oh, it's hard to put into words. Uh, it was very powerful. Yeah. I don't know what else to say. Yeah. You ended up studying with him, right? Yeah. He, how, how did, was he teaching somewhere or no, was it just f- because it was you and yeah, it's kind of, right. I had like unique access, I guess. Yeah. Um, and, you know, I probably, I don't know, 14 until I was like 19 or 20. I was like, 
those were like serious Tony Rice years. And I, I yeah. learned, I went, I dug as deeply into him as I was yeah. capable of, of doing and kind of knew every note that he ever played. Yeah. I could play it all. And, uh, not, I couldn't play it like him cause nobody can do that, but you know, just figured out some of his patterns of thought and stuff. And yeah. Tried to figure out his timing and, and that's why that's so compelling. One and, to figure out his method. Yeah, it's his timing is nuts. It's crazy, and I never, I never, I never really did. But so I, when I would see Tony, like in later years, I think he was, uh, you know, I think he thought it was cool that like he didn't, he didn't want anybody to really copy him. But mm-hmm. I think he appreciated that I'd obviously gone real deep yeah. on on like. Maybe stuff that wasn't so surface. Right. So how much were you studying with him? Was it a regular thing for well, a while? Well, no. It was... It was. So we connected... We kind of really reconnected um, when I was a freshman in college. Uh-huh. And I went down to Merlefest with some of my friends. And uh-huh. we hung out at the Addison Motor Inn, which is this motel, like, right... Very close to... Uh, very close to Merlefest, where, where they put up the musicians. And... Uh, and we we stayed at the Addison, and our room was like right next to Tony's. And I was like, I don't know. He just kind of had accepted me, and yeah. like I was Ben's son, and I right. like was a real disciple of his. Yeah. And uh, and it, we hung out, and he like let me play his guitar, and I played for him, and it yeah. was it was this really cool thing. And um, so that was that was my freshman year, and then my my next year of school. And it was like we kind of really connected that weekend. It was it was yeah. cool. Yeah. And and that that um, next school year at Oberlin, there's a thing called winter term where you design a project in January because Oberlin. That, that's in, where you were going. Yeah. Was Oberlin. Yeah. Yeah. Northeast Ohio, and it's like just miserable. It's like ten miles from Lake Erie, which makes the sky permanently gray that yeah. time of year, and it just yeah. sucks. Yeah. And so, um, so Oberlin has this winter term project program where you can design a project and go out into the world or you could do it at Oberlin but yeah. most people go out into the world and do it for a month and then school resumes in February so mm-hmm. I was just like you know what have I got to let, let me let me call Tony and see if I can like go study with him and I called him and and to my complete and total surprise because he's like kind of an enigma he really kind yeah. of keeps to himself yeah. and doesn't let people get getting close to him at all right for well some people do but you know he's this enigmatic guy and he said yeah come on down and so i went down uh and hung out with him at his house with him and his wife pam for for like a week um in january of 2002 okay and we just would sit in his basement and listen to music yeah and talk about music yeah and uh talk about philosophy of of music and being a musician what it means to be a musician and we like didn't none of it was about playing guitar really we in fact that the whole time we never played i've actually never sat yeah tony was my i I will say tony was my my teacher or like primary mentor yeah for for a period of time but we've never actually sat and picked a tune together no kidding yeah wow you'd already you'd already kind of done yeah, a lot it's of like, homework in that department. Yeah, it's like, right? what, so, is he going to teach me how to play Gold Rush? Like, 
what's the point? You know, that's not where it's at. Yeah. Um, Get the video, man. Yeah, exactly. Um, no, we just talked about being a musician and we right. talked about music and, right. and he really kind of, he really opened my, he's a very wise man. Yeah. He's really wise about all that stuff. And, uh, and I think he, he kind of got to me at the right time, kind of redirected me because at that point, you know, I was a teenager and I'd started getting good at guitar and probably started getting kind of cocky and, and, um, and kind of had it, you know, it was like my approach was like, okay, I'm going to be the best flat picker ever. I'm going to play the craziest stuff. And, and, and he, I was playing his guitar one, one time and, uh, cause we never actually played together, but the guitar would be out. Yeah. And, uh, I was playing like cat on the cane and playing these like crazy Eric Johnson, like right. big interval licks. And yeah. like, <laughs> he's like, Gritter, what the hell are you doing? Really? I was, yeah. I said, I said, I said, don't like, you know, well, there are two, I'm mixing up two stories. We said like, don't, you know, what are you doing? Like your whole point is, uh, the whole point of doing this is not, it's not about you. It's like the whole point is to collab. And this is a quote. He said, the whole point is to collaborate with your fellow musicians to make sounds that are pleasing to the ear. Uh-huh. And which I always took to mean there's like a little bit of like Chinese proverb in there. Yeah. It's like you kind of have to interpret it a little bit, but mm-hmm. like, but I always took that to mean like, look, you're here to make music. It's going to be received as music. Your you, yeah. your job is to is to listen to the people you're playing with and make them sound better and make this thing create this thing between in the space between the two of you or the five of you or whatever. Like your whole gig. What it's really about, it's not about you. It's about this thing that's in between the people. It's yeah, about yeah. music. And, uh, and, and also the, the fact that actually that music gets heard by people. That was right. another big part that I, thing that I took away from that. Uh-huh. But that was like, I don't know, it kind of really altered the course of my thing. I stopped, kind of instantly stopped wanting to be like the best guitar player yeah, less of a competition and more about just trying to find your voice and stuff. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And that was another thing he would talk about was like, you know, Oscar Peterson's one of his favorite musicians or Heifetz, you know, mm-hmm. he's like any, like the greatest musicians, you can tell it's them in maximum of two notes. Yeah. You know, that's all you need is two yeah. notes. I would agree and with you, that. And you, some, a lot of times you can probably do it in one. Yeah. Not many people get that experience to like dig really deeply into something and then have the guy that like is responsible for that say like, okay, that's fine. But now yeah. like, like he was, yeah, he was like, that's cool. But, <laughs> but, um, you know, you gotta, you gotta use that and you gotta be you now yeah. find the things that you love. Cause right. we all are, are really unique. We all have a, a unique set of things that we love and that's mm-hmm. kind of what makes us us as musicians. And if you really right. stay true to that, you really honor all of that and you really mm-hmm. do love those things and, yeah. and you, and you work on them and pay it, you know, then you're, you're going to wind up being your own musician. You're going to, you are going to have your own voice. There's no right. getting around it. Yeah. If you know, if you, if you actually do it. Yeah. Can we just talk some about your recorded work? I don't know how old you were when you started um, the string dusters, but that happened was that like just out of college or something or yeah that 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 kind of that band that yeah, was straight out of college it kind of grew out of a band from college called stable horse which there's a guy named zach hickman who's a great bass player uh plays with josh ritter and mm-hmm. um 
now, but he, he was a senior at Oberlin when I was a freshman. Yeah. And uh, he, Zach's a guy who's always like making projects happen. Mm-hmm. Like ridiculous, any kind of project. He just makes, Got it going he's on. one of these dudes who's yeah. just like doing stuff. And so he saw, I showed up and he was like, okay, we got this young like bluegrass guy who's right. a freshman here. Like let's, we'll let's do a thing. Right. So he started this little trio. Uh, and then that next year, uh, he moved away to, he graduated, moved to Boston yep. and met Chris Pandolfi and Andy Hall, uh-huh. uh, who were the banjo player and dobro player yep. of the String Dusters. But of course they didn't exist back then. They were just yeah. kids in Boston too. Right. And, uh, and so, and he called me up and Zach assembled, did, did what Zach does. He assembled a band, mm-hmm. Stable Horse. And we made, actually, and I went literally from Tony Rice's house. Tony dropped me off at the airport and I flew up to Boston. Really? And met Chris Pandolfi and Andy Hall for the first time. No way. Because we'd been just assembled by Zach. Right. And we made an EP and it, uh, and it was just atrocious. Really? Why? Oh, terrible. Well, because we didn't, we'd never played, like, I'd other. never played in a band before. I didn't know yeah. how to play rhythm guitar or make right. other people sound good or any of that kind of stuff. And um, it, This was not called the string, the infamous string. No, this series. was called Stable Horse. Stable Horse, okay. Yeah, and, but then, you know, we'd play at Oberlin, like, that next fall, we played at Oberlin. We'd play maybe twice a year, my junior and senior years. So were college. they not in Boston anymore? No, they were. They were, They would okay. just come. Oh, okay. They would, they would come, and somehow we'd, you know, every, we're kids, so yeah. money didn't sure. matter. You just yeah. kind of go do the thing. Yeah. And, it, and it, like, it turned into a cool thing. It felt like, boy, this is a pretty cool band, actually. Like, yeah. we should, we could, there's some stuff here. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and so we were, everybody's just kind of, because I was always the baby. I was always, every, you know, those guys are all, you know, three, four, or five years older than me. Um. So we were kind of just waiting for me to get out of college, and then we were mm-hmm. going to start a band. But Zach had his gig with Ritter, so he didn't want to join. So, so I moved to Nashville knowing I was going to start a band with Chris Pandolfi and Andy Hall. They were here? Yeah. A- Andy had actually moved to Nashville right around the time that Zach put us all together. But, okay. So Andy was in Nashville. Panda was in Boston. He was the first banjo principal at Berkeley. Really? Yeah. He, oh, okay. Uh, yeah, and I moved down to Nashville, and meanwhile, they'd kind of met some other, Jeremy Garrett yeah. and Jesse Cobb, um, and eventually we met Travis Book, Alan Bartram. Uh, do you know Alan? No. Great, he's a bass player now in the Del McCurry band. He oh, okay. Club. Like, you're only on their first record, right? Yeah. So, uh, what was that experience like? Like, what? How, how did you evolve as a musician and a band to be able to make a, because that's a cool record. Like, Thank you. Suddenly, you're a good band like were you guys playing a ton of gigs and stuff is that how you kind of figured that stuff out yeah yeah i mean we we kind of yeah we were playing a bunch and i think we were just so completely immersed in music all of us you know it was the plan we were going to start our band so we were playing together we were practicing a bunch and we'd go play a little like dinky gigs here and there but like that's how you get that's how you get good that's how you get good And, and uh yeah, and so there was just a lot of that. Did you record it pretty much like a live bluegrass band, essentially, or essentially? It... I mean, we definitely there. You know, we definitely like fixed things and mm-hmm. stuff as they needed to be fixed. But yeah, but uh, but yeah, Tim Stafford produced that record, and yeah. and uh, yeah, is that the first record that's come out where you're where you feel like it's a good representation of you as a? Though yeah, I was really proud of that. I still am proud of that record. Uh huh. You know, people ask me why I haven't made a solo record. And honestly, it's just because of like, 
probably cowardice or something, but like, but I, I need to, I know I need to do it because like, because there's this like capture a moment in time thing. Like yeah. that's why records are cool. It's not, yeah. a lot of times I, I feel like, uh, when you don't make a record, it's because it's like, it's not going to be good enough. I'm not, I'm not right. ready to make the record, but, oh, I think, but I what think they wind right. up being is like, the reason they're cool is because they're, it's, it's a document. Totally. And that's, you know, I, yeah. that's how I see the Dusters record. Right. Know. And how did that go from being in that band to like, what was the Punch Brothers starting out? That Well, all? Punch Brothers kind of started out really around a similar time. I mean, Thiele called us all in, I was at Rocky Grass, which is in July yeah. uh, in, in 2005. He'd started hanging around Nashville a bit because uh-huh. uh, he'd gotten, he'd split up from his wife yeah. in San Francisco. And so we started hanging out a little bit because we were peers and... Mm-hmm. And, uh, Are you guys about the same age, or is he? Yeah, he's a year and a half older than I am. Okay. Um, and uh, he's already a seasoned veteran at this. But point. he was a total, yeah, he was like a total seasoned veteran. Yeah. We got together and played with Noam and you know had and Greg Garrison, the original bass player, and yeah, and had like a really fun jam session mm-hmm. and just yeah, it was we had like it was really cool. That there was like a. a that was a tremendous time of like discovery. We were all kind of discovering each other. Yeah. Anyway, he called us up in 2005. He said he was wanted to write this long form piece. Right. And would we be willing to do it? Basically. Yeah. yeah. And of course, like you know, Thiele was like a hero to all of our. You know, he's right. always been as great as he is. Like yeah. he's he's always kind of lived somewhere yeah. up there. Yeah. As far as just being a great musician, and. uh so it was like, of course we'll do that. And we started working on the music for Blind in 2005. Um, and it, it took a few years before it was released. We actually mm-hmm. made a demo of it. Um, it was cool. It was on two mics. Um, really? Yeah. It's a, a neat recording. Was that the initial vision of the band was to be able to present that piece of music? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it wasn't going to be a band. It was going to be like a... a it was gonna make we were gonna make Chris Thiele's next solo record. Okay, and and that's and it was gonna be this and his so the content of that record was gonna be this really ambitious through composed piece that yeah. was gonna be more of an undertaking than like Bela or you know yeah. those guys would have been up for right because his you know music is intense yeah how did you go about with your parts to that was it all arranged for you or uh a lot well a lot of it's scored out note for note it's like is literally it? yeah okay a lot of it is written out um and uh but there will be sections on the score i mean god i haven't looked at the score in years and years but uh you know there will be parts that are where it looks like you're reading a string quintet right like just exactly like that with counterpoint and you just yeah. this notation and then there will be sections where it says you know, play back up here, read almost like more like a jazz chord chart. Like yeah. here are the chords, maybe a note to improvise. And then there are other sections where it's like, I don't remember if it actually said right apart, but basically where we all, the other four of us, like essentially wrote parts that, yeah. that I, to me kind of became part of the piece. Yeah. yeah. Um, and uh, so it was cool. It was like this really ambitious thing. It was like, really hard work the music was very difficult how and, long of a process was putting it all together oh, i shouldn't say that on here oh, yeah you, uh, <laughs> you can cuss all you want yeah um <laughs> it was probably i mean like a year we worked on it hard for i mean he was writing the piece in time like 
when he sent us the first music, it was just, that was all there was. It was like the first half of the first movement. Okay. And then the next thing he sent was the fourth movement. And then we, yeah. we would get chunks like every few days. We'd have like another like, you know, wow. like 20 measures of, of the fourth movement. And that's how the whole thing kind of went on. Okay. Until the whole piece was done. So did you spend a bunch of time with it on your own before you even oh hooked up with a, God. a ton of time? A ton of time. I mean, really? we all did. Oh, we all, Noam, you hear Noam talk about it. And he's like, I had to kind of re like invent new ways to do things on banjo. Cause like, otherwise it's impossible. Like there weren't, and, and some of the stuff that he does in particular, I didn't have to do any, it, I wasn't reinventing the wheel, but like, Man, that stuff, a lot of it does not fall well on guitar. Right. Yeah, no kidding. <laughs> Especially the, um, so it was a lot, yeah, I mean, and I'm a lousy reader. I can't read, I'm not fluent enough to like, even So you like, had to memorize it all, basically. Yeah, I definitely memorized it all. But, um, but that was, that was fine. I mean, because I, I, I really got to know it yeah. pretty deep. I mean. So I, by the time you recorded it, was it, were you, did you record it as one piece or did you do it in? Well, we did the demo yes. in chunks, and then we re-recorded it for um, our nuns, our first Nonsuch release. And so, was it like getting a take of a section, and then like maybe rewriting stuff, or like figuring out what worked or what didn't, or was it all? No, like... at that point, we—I mean, we'd already played it. We premiered that piece at Carnegie, like in '07. So it was like okay, it was so a it was thing. set in stone. Yeah, it was pretty set right. in stone. Right. And even with—I mean, there are parts where, like, you know, it's like improvise a solo. Yeah. Or, or like there are parts where it's like improvised backup. And so, yeah. you know, that, that would change from night to night. But the, right. basically the bones of it were, had been set for a while. Right. And so is that have, when the movie was filmed? The movie was filmed in 08, like sh- right Later. after the record came out. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. The movie's kind of weird because... The movie is weird. Like yeah. it's, there's like all that, like lots of tension in it and like... It's, I mean, it was tense, but like not, but not like that. It was just like anything can be tense sometimes. I, I feel like we, the the band, we all have kind of a weird relationship to the movie because uh-huh. it doesn't feel like real life. It doesn't right. feel like that's actually, it feels like they, they, and I, I, I mean. Over-dramatized it maybe. Yeah, something. they just totally, totally got in there and was like, okay, we've got all this footage how are we going to make this into a thing with, right. with some sort of dramatic arc? But it was like, it, it was something that wasn't immediately like received in the way that you were hoping, right? Yeah, I think, I mean, we'd worked so hard on it and I, I, I'm really proud of that music. I mean, I think like, yeah, it's, it's unique. Amazing. There's nothing, totally. the, 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 not, I'm not aware of anything kind of in, certainly in American string band music, but yeah. in a lot, like I'm not really aware of anything like that. Yeah. Um, that really kind of put in such a thorough and kind of comprehensive way, put folk and like the formal together. Yeah. Uh, I feel honored. I mean, I, I'm just the guitar player, I, but I feel honored to have like been a part of that. Yeah. It's incredible. So I think because we'd worked so hard on it and we all had such a front row seat to how incredible this stuff was, we were like, Oh, it's going to come out and people are going to love it. And it right. came out. It's this weird piece, you yeah. know, and, uh, no, but I think what was what was hard, and maybe what came through in the movie more was the messaging about what the music was it was kind of tricky because people were being set up for one thing, right? And then they were like, you know, people would think they were coming to, to a Nickel Creek show, yeah. or they'd think they're coming I've to had a, experiences like a bluegrass that. Yeah. show. 
I know. And we'd go play this like, like, you know, often atonal, like, <laughs> like you know, through composed forty minute four yeah. movement piece. Freak people right out of their seats. Yeah, and yeah. it was like that yeah. was it was unfortunate that there wasn't a better way to talk about it. But I'm, you know, in retrospect, also it's like. That's great. Whatever. That's yeah, how. And, we, and we how work. can you prepare people for that? Like you have to just dive in there and like give it to them at some point. Yeah. And, and the thing is too, we, you know, it set the pace for how Punch Brothers works. Mm-hmm. You know, it was like, okay, we're willing to like just kill ourselves. I mean, I, th- yeah. I don't know if we would be willing to do that now because right. <laughs> we're all just older and people have kids and like, yeah. And did that carry through into the next records too? Like, oh yeah, I, I'm. I was curious about working with John Bryan. I'm a big John Bryan fan, and John uh, Bryan's amazing. Now, uh, it's just true. Like, he had essentially little to nothing to do with the. Well, I wondered about that because I mean, he, you know, like I love his production, and he puts a big stamp on everything he does. But his yeah. his stamp is not really on your record. No, well, he he was he was great and invaluable. But as far as like. I shouldn't say he didn't produce the I mean, he absolutely produced the record, but he produced it in, in a really hands-off, not historically John Bryan-ish way. If you kind of look at the what he normally did, what he what he did is he came in, he wanted to capture what the thing that we already did. So yeah. the 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 setup, the recording setup was like verging on pornographic it was like we had we were recording at ocean way b which is like the most incredible in LA. room yeah in la yeah. um and uh you know there's so many incredible records that have been cut yeah. in that room it has having worked in there it's like amazing you listen to some of the records that are cut in there and you're like oh yeah that's right. definitely that room wow it's amazing cool. what a good room can do anyway um but th- you know so we we're in ocean way b and uh and uh we had each of us had a 251. We yeah. were kind of set up in a semicircle, each with a one 251 on our instrument. Yeah. A C24 in the middle. Yeah. Some M49s hanging out and some, like, it was just this uh, ridiculous scene yeah. of like old microphones right. in this beautiful room. Uh, through, and the board, the console they had back then was some crazy, weird custom job that Bill Putnam built that yep. sounded incredible it was an amazing uh sonic experience but anyway john like came in and got us set up in this very particular way and then we would we were kind of left to our own for, for all tracking like he would we'd start tracking around four in the afternoon mm-hmm. you know show up maybe an hour before hour or two before kind of get ready start tracking around four We'd usually cut off around like twelve thirty or one, mm-hmm. and John would usually show up around twelve. Really? Yeah. Wow. Yeah. So he'd be there for like half hour. Maybe some nights he'd get there a little earlier. Some nights, like he'd get there as we were finishing. Some nights he wouldn't show up, and like, but but he showed up. He showed up most nights. Yeah. And he would listen to what had been going on, and um, and he would talk, and he would. He has this. Um, have you ever talked to him? Or, Never. He's he's a, he's awesome. He's an awesome dude. Yeah. Um, and he has this way of uh, I don't want to say pontificate, but no, it's like it's it's in the absolute <laughs> most beautiful sense of the word. He yeah. pontificates, yeah, yeah. and uh, and he would just like he would just pontificate on whatever 
like had been going on, whatever he was perceiving the music yeah. to be. And he he gave us so much wisdom. He brought so much. I feel like he just in that a, little period of time that he spent. Yeah, I feel like he should have gotten a production credit on the next record because like some of the, these things that <laughs> we, just he said, over. like kind like of what? changed. What, what the were way. some things that stuck with you? Well, like uh, one thing, for instance, that was really big um, was because Punch Brothers music back then, especially, it really was pretty intellectual. It was pretty mm-hmm. like heady stuff. Yeah, and. Um, and and we we kind of had gotten to a place where we weren't necessarily rendering it in the most healthy way. Like I wish we could go back and recut Antiphogmatic. It would be a much better record, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, when I hear that record, it just sounds like five guys who are really nervous and really trying to get it right. Hmm. That's how I. And I think the music is really cool. The content of the music is really cool on there. But but I personally uh, feel like we were just trying so hard to hmm. do it be perfect right and so john kind of perceived that and he said uh and and that affects how the music breathes and of course, like how, yeah. all that all this other kind of stuff that now is like the st- stuff that i absolutely value probably first and then then everything else yeah and he was just saying like look there's if as long as if somebody's listening to this music and their body if they're moving along to it if they're grooving like they're sitting there like moving their bodies moving their head then nobody then they can't accuse it of being overly intellectual right he was like which was that was a huge to me that's always been the maybe the one thing that he said that like yeah. that just kind of re charted the the course for punch brothers because and that's kind of one of your main gigs in that band really is like you're not you're almost not even really a soloist so much in that band it's like a you're the rhythm section yeah totally totally Yeah. yeah and 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 i think i mean he was he was addressing it to all of us but like but that for me was like oh wow yeah that's that's the that's the thing um was that a weird experience though having him not there for so much or was it kind of good in in that way i i'm not sure um i think mixed feelings i have mixed feelings about it like part Uh of me wishes that were you surprised that he wasn't there more no i mean it was it was cool like we were just kind of doing our thing but but in retrospect i feel like i feel like that record could be a lot better uh-huh. I, I, I'm really proud of it. Like, don't get me wrong. I'm, I'm, I'm proud of that record. I like I, that record I, a lot. I like it, but, but, and maybe it's just because I lived through it, but right. I feel like I see the mistakes we made uh-huh. and I see how it could be a, a lot more transcendent. I feel like that record for me doesn't go to that, the transcendent place that the music could have gotten to. Right. And do you feel like with, um, the next one you remedied that in some way i feel like in a lot of ways yeah we we that was shakir king that you were that was with shakir one, right? here in nashville yeah. at blackbird right. oh yeah. you did that blackbird uh-huh um Jakir was awesome Jakir's yeah great. so that one is like that's sort of like the one that i thought or i mean the john bryan one i thought would be more experimental sonically yeah but really it's that one that's more well i think that's what we thought when we were getting john too it was like okay, okay this is gonna be cool we'll get and then crazy but john had other ideas but but that was cool. Like I, I feel like I don't, I don't. Uh, I'm, I'm cool with how it all happened. You know, yeah. I feel like just getting to spend that time with John, where he was talking and kind of philosophizing, and yeah, like it was really cool. Uh-huh. Um, I, I feel like we learned. It was like it was. You know what it was like? It was. It was like 
hanging with Tony Rice. Right. It sounds was, like it, it. Was, it was kind of maybe the other experience I've had. Just picking up some wisdom. Yeah, where uh-huh. where it's like we're talk we're not just talking about we're talking about big picture things, right? Because yeah. that's what actually matters. That's yeah. what's actually is up. Yeah, I don't know. Jakir was really he was he was awesome. Um, he had all these cool ideas about how to record, uh, and like he was each guy had four mics on them. Really? Yeah, and and one of those mics would go out to an amp. Yeah, yeah, because there's a lot of crunchy guitar sounds and stuff on all that. All kinds of stuff. I'm just yeah. playing my old right. 30, 1939 no D28. No pickups or anything. It's all just no mics pickups, feeding yeah. amps. Okay. Were you on headphones so you could hear the crunchy stuff as well? Well, like, yeah. Because that's, that's, that's a big. that'll have a big effect. That's right? the thing, yeah. So we, we got in there. We'd been playing these songs and working on them. And, you know, we had them pretty well arranged and everything. And we got into the studio with Jakir. And for each song, he would just kind of say, all right, play for a little while. And he'd go and mess with stuff. Mm-hmm. And then he'd be like, all right, you ready to hear? He'd be like, yeah. And so he'd, he'd all of a sudden, it, your headphone input would go from being just like, you know, your guitar, like yeah. always it sounds in front of a microphone, to all of a sudden there's your guitar with like tons of like a wash and reverb and like this faint chorus and right. like this. And, and he always, Jakir was so good. He always figured out exactly the thing that, it needed to be like punch brothers is is a funny band because a lot of times especially that record maybe it was like okay we're gonna play a banjo a guitar a mandolin a fiddle and a bass but even if we're playing a song that's really a rock song yeah these are the instruments right uh and and so jakir just had this he was so insightful of hearing what we were hearing in our imaginations but that would never come out of the instruments but he just was able to kind of conjure up the things that would bring that closer to reality and so when we actually on input you start hearing this stuff playing back through your cans right it was like oh shit i'm ready to play now let's do this and was it was there like much like real misfires as far as like something so off base that you couldn't i don't think so i mean i'm yeah. sure maybe there were times where someone was thought like maybe we should dial that back or maybe you know i'm sure right. there were a few times where but no, but, I but think. But most of those effects that you hear on those acoustic instruments were the real time things that you guys were playing on. Oh, yeah, I think they, they all were. Like added after the fact. No, I don't yeah, think. That's cool. I mean, man. maybe. I mean, I suppose he, he could have done that because, you know, you could always just. I'm but sure in, he was recording the dry signal, too. Right, but, right. But no, that's what we were hearing. In general. Oh, that's yeah, super cool. That was, yeah. And which, that was so big because, because all, of a, all of a sudden we were able to play these songs fresh. Right. It's like we we'd rehearsed those songs and written them for, you know, a year okay. before that. And we were all living yeah. in New York at the time, so we'd like you know, we were working on new music and yeah. getting together a lot and playing shows a bunch and yeah. We were just super in in it with Punch Brothers and right. um so, you know, you you'd play something enough and you kind of beat it to death. It's hard to hard yeah. to really get it to that magical place and as yeah. soon as we heard that stuff in the headphones sounding so righteous and so like exactly yeah. what we'd imagined that they would sound like uh-huh. without even thinking that this was a possibility that you could do this in the studio. Right. Those are just the mental, uh, uh, was that stuff communicated to him beforehand that, that, that that's what you were looking for was like, no, well, I mean, I think probably like, yeah, we were open to effects and amps and stuff, but mm-hmm. like, it's not like I was saying on this song, you know, let's make the guitar right. sound this way. It, yeah. it, and, 
it was so cool because it just it really got us to to yeah. play it as if it was the first time right and then what about working with t-bone burnett because that's sort of like a totally different ball of wax right completely different ball of wax also completely now, was, epic dude right and just, now was he there for the process because i've heard oh, a lot yeah. of reports of him not being yeah t-bone around. was very present i mean he, okay. you know he split uh, there were a few times where he was gone for a few days but yeah. like basically yeah no t-bone was his hand was definitely right there yeah uh, and he was incredible he's yeah. such he's so good at his job yeah he's the reason there's a reason he's like produced so much good stuff i feel like t-bone's just he's so good at making everybody he's like he's like a psychological genius he mm -hmm. like just knows he knows he understands the mindset where great music occurs right which i i'm not even sure i totally do i mean i kind mm -hmm. of vaguely do but i feel like t-bone's like a real expert in knowing the the mental state yeah, you know, he's been through it, right? Like, yeah, yeah, where where like great stuff happens, yeah. and how to cultivate that in people. Yeah, without them even knowing that that's what he's doing. Right. That's why I say he's like this great psychological like manipulator. <laughs> it, yeah. I, I, you know, I say that in a in a really healthy, positive, positive way. way. <laughs> yeah, it's like he's just he's somehow he's so keyed in. He's so in, emotionally and in, like. He's, he's a super intelligent guy too, but... And he's and, he's more of an old school kind of guy, like technology wise. Like, did you record that one to tape and yeah. with less, there's a, there's like less effects and things like that on it. Yeah. It was the, done more uh, naturally. and Yeah, it was all recorded to tape. Like, you know, noise floor be damned. It, yeah. Like, yeah, he's, he's, he's old school in that way. He has different, like T-Bone's cool. You go into a session that T-Bone is running and when you arrive at the studio it's all set up and there's like usually a zone where there's like there are like couches and like a table mm -hmm. and like nice like rugs mm -hmm. and like he really kind of cultivates or curates um a vibe for the whole a vibe that that instantly you step in and you're like okay like yeah. we're here doing this thing we're yeah. here to do music you know it's like you step into another space and and your your actual mental uh yeah space really changes too mm -hmm. uh which is actually i haven't really thought about that but that's i think a, that's an important that's thing. a huge part of making a cool record yeah yeah i think it really is and how long of a process was that last record with him um we started it uh like the last few days of may yeah it was about three weeks okay and then and do you guys stick around for the mixing and all that stuff or do you not really gabe gabe witcher uh was there okay that because he lives in la right so mike Crisante mixed it yeah so gabbers was there yeah for a lot of that okay and we were kind of sending in notes right remotely which yeah. is a hell of a way to mix <laughs> no not not recommended <laughs> yeah yeah just buy the plane ticket yeah man you know? Yeah. Is there another Punch Brothers record on the horizon? Yeah. Oh, cool. Yeah, we're, I mean, we're getting together. We're doing a tour in June, and mm -hmm. and we're just literally today, we're emailing about um, writing dates. Oh, cool. You know, we're, we're in the midst of the longest break from Punch Brothers since the band started. Okay. I think it's something that we all want to do forever. Okay. It's kind of a, a unique sure is. musical brotherhood. Yeah. So I've got this record with Julian coming out yeah. that we mentioned at the top, but I'm super psyched about it. I'm going to play some of that if, if that's all right. And, yeah, please. Um, awesome. Hey, yeah. that's great. I'm happy to be here. All right. Well, fun fun talking. Thanks for having me over. Yeah, fun, thanks, fun for, to get thanks for doing it, man. I really appreciate talk it. Talk about all that stuff. All right. Well, that was fun. Love his music. Um, 
make sure you go check out Chris and Julian Lodge's new record, Mount Royal. And I will see you next week for another episode of Music Makers and Soul Shakers. Music Makers and Soul Shakers is recorded at the Hen House Studio in Nashville, Tennessee. Please visit us online at www.stevedawson.ca. Thanks always to Jeremy Holmes in Vancouver for his help with research and to Michael Glusak for editing, music placement, and mixing. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.